If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Daniel Boone. In the last episode, Daniel shared the excruciating details of his two sons being killed by savages. He also described the strategy he used to survive the gauntlet and how afterwards his enemy, Chief Blackfish, was impressed and eventually adopted him as a son. In the next episode, he'll share the details of his 167-mile escape that he finished on raw, bloody feet. He'll also discuss his court-martial, where he was accused of treason, and why that pushed him to leave Kentucky forever. When they captured me that day, they called me Boone. They knew who I was. They knew that I was the one, the great white one that had established this fort on the western frontier. I see. And I don't like using the word famous, but I had become very popular with these people. And I had done something and established a home and, if you will, a homestead that no man had ever done. And I became big medicine to him. And even so that he would name me Shiltoe in Shawnee, which means big turtle of the woods, and adopt me into his son. And, you know, Mr. Dean, all those months that I would stay with him that year, I took on the image of one of them. They they plucked my hair, the women and children of that tribe, another humiliating event in my life that other than a small scalp lock on the back of my head that I would dress like them and he would adopt me to be his son and I would work on their rifles because my brother Squire was a master gun builder and I had learned somewhat how to tinker if you will with these rifles and fix them and repair them that at one point that next year I was allowed to ride a horse with them in the morning when we would hunt and I was taken to Detroit to the hair buyer Hamilton. And that's what we called him because he's the one that the British, they had encouraged the natives to take the scalp and the women and children of the frontier and they would trade it for blankets and gunpowder and tomahawks and swords. And he, he offered blackfish, I don't know if it was 20, 20 pounds of silver and a bunch of blankets and um, a couple of horses in the saddle. And he refused to trade me there. And this is where the controversy begins because a lot of those men, when I would later escape and come back to Fort Boonesboro, a lot of those men chose that did escape to stay up in that area. They, a lot of them were never seen at Fort Boonesboro again because eventually all those men that were captured would escape and they would end up finding different places and different homes and I've tried to explain over and over why some of the men didn't come back, and I did, and that would consequently my escape is a story within itself, how I traveled 167 miles to get back to Bensboro, riding a horse into the ground and moccasin feet. Let me tell you, Mr. Dean, about what happened on the morning of my escape. Before you talk about your escape, concerning this time that you spent with them, this was all a ruse. I mean, he's adopting, at least that's what I'm hearing, he adopts you as his son, but that is something that he thinks is happening. For you, this is all just a setup for you to eventually escape and get out of there. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, all right. Okay, so keep going. Well, on the, the morning of my escape, 
um, I was woken way before daylight, and I was allowed to ride a horse that day, and it had a saddle on it. I don't know why I did on that day, but I had acquired a, a barrel and a locking mechanism. And while I was living in captivity with them, I would short shot my rounds. In other words, instead of putting a heavy load of gunpowder, I would I would put lesser gunpowder when I was allowed to hunt with them. And I would squander this extra gunpowder. And when I would shoot an animal for them, I would dig the lead out of the animal and I would keep that lead and I would form it back into a round ball. And so on the morning of that I was awakened before daylight, I was allowed to ride that horse. And I'm not sure to this day why this happened, but Blackfish's wife was with us that morning. And as the sun come up, you've hunted enough, Mr. Dean, to know that the, when the sun comes up, the turkeys come off the roost and they flock down to the ground. And they were shooting wildly down this hillside at all these turkeys. And I looked over at Blackfish's wife that was mounted on a small red pony next to me and I said I'm going home and she had learned some of my English language then Mr. Dean and I said I'm going home to see my family and she said your father will be very angry at you because he had gone down this holler and they were picking these turkeys up that had come off the morning roost and I remember pulling the reins that morning just like it was yesterday towards home and I rode that horse into the ground and I didn't have this gun put together to, to put this suffering horse down, but I took the I took the saddle off when I reached the Ohio River and set it up on top of a tree stump and hoped someday that a white man might find it and find it useful. And I crossed that day on day two, the Ohio River. Day three, I had reached where I had been captured sometime many months earlier in February that I've told you about. And on day four i struck that barrel and that lock together and charged my weapon i shot a real small buffalo and i cut its tongue from its mouth and i had a meal the first time i'd eaten four days and my feet were so galled from running in those moccasins that on day four i had traveled i reckon i had gone from running that horse into the ground and running in my moccasin feet i had come back home and i had reached boonesboro when the cry went out that an Indian had got inside the camp because you remember, Mr. Dean, I had lived with them for a year and I looked like an Indian. You traveled more than a hundred miles in four days. I did. horse end on your raw feet. I did. Jeez. How do you travel through thick, uncultivated land like this rough forest with, without shoes? How do you do that? Well, I had moccasins on my feet, but I about wore my feet to the bone because my feet were so galled from running. And I, I almost crippled myself until I reached Fort Boonesboro. But I knew if I didn't stay on the move and keep moving, Mr. Dean, that they were going to eventually catch me. And I actually, when they hadn't caught me at the Ohio, I felt like on day three that I could make it home. And I had hunted for many years in these woods and I knew these woods like I knew the back of my hand and I felt comfortable. I run through the pain and the suffering until I got there. But Rebecca had gone and feared me for dead. And even a message had been brought back that I had been killed in captivity with the Shawnee. 
and she had gone back to family in the Yakin Valley of North Carolina when I entered that fort that day. Oh, she la- she get- she gave up. She thought you were dead. She did. She feared okay. me for dead. So okay. that September, Rebecca had come back that summer, and we reestablished it. I was home, and over 400 warriors would attack that fort. That's where my women and I instructed them to put on clothing to appear as men in that fort. They slaughtered all of our cattle, all of our goats, all of our pigs. They even tried to dig a tunnel to get underneath the fort. They shot flaming arrows that tried to burn the fort down. Okay, let me catch up. So where we are right now is when you returned after escaping Blackfish's camp and you go on this long 100-plus mile hike, it was soon after that that these 400 warriors attacked and sieged Boonesboro? It was, and Blackfish, the war chief, led this party. And what we thought was a civilized negotiation, he wanted me to come back home. And I explained to him in council that day, before they started the attack and shoot at our people, that I didn't want to come back home. This was my home. And he said, but you're my adopted son. And I tried to explain through Pompey that interpreted it that it was under duress, that I had not been taken freely. I see. And so, Mr. Dean, what would follow is shortly thereafterwards, I was I was brought up on charges. They convened a court-martial to try me for treason. Wait, is this before or and after the siege, the 10-day siege? It's after the siege. I, I want to hear about the siege for a second. So he's got 400 warriors around Boonesboro, and you've got how many people in the camp to fight them off? 40 at the most. Okay. All right. Now, this is something you have to explain to me because I don't understand this at all. I read quite a bit about this before our conversation, and I don't understand what happened here. My understanding is is that this siege took place for 10 days, and you've got anybody that can fire a gun up on the top of the walls of this wooden fort that you've built, and Blackfish and his men would attack the fort, and basically you would shoot them. You'd pick them off because they had no way to get to you. They couldn't get the ladders up. But this is a wooden fort. Why does this go on for 10 days? Why doesn't he burn the fort? Well, we had water there that we would pour on top of the roofs. And as bewildering as you find it, they were unsuccessful during these 10 days to burn this fort down. Oh, so they were trying to burn it down. They were, but my fort that we had established was not as a nail repair as I once thought it would have been. And we were able to sustain this attack for all these days to prevent them from entering in that fort. And during those 10 days, you didn't lose any people inside the fort, is that right? No, sir. Not a single soul. And how many of Blackfish's men were killed? Any guess? No, because I think I talked about that earlier, that when daylight would come, when they would fight at night and we would shoot back, the ways of the natives were they carried off their dead, so we don't know how many that we ended up taking. Okay. And then I remember that 10th day, and I stood there and overlooked that vast cornfield that they had just absolutely mutilated, and all of our dead livestock, there was no more. They were gone. So, So then after 10 days, why did he leave? Why did he give up? You know, I never spoke to him again after that day. Mr. Dean, let me just be very forthright with you. Okay. 
I never got over my two boys being killed. And when my son Nathan had gone out to Missouri, I would wander and I would run a an outpost. I would hunt. I would do several things in my life over the next several many years. And then I would end up going out west. I'd heard about the Rocky Mountains. A lot of men say that I would end up going past the Missouri when I would go out there to build a home next to my son's stone house in Missouri that I would go to the Rocky Mountains. But you know the truth, Mr. Dean, I never made it to the Rocky Mountains. I never went that far. But I heard it was a vast wilderness that no man had ever seen. And no, uh, but I never like just your neck of the woods. No, I never there. I lived in contentment and happiness these years here. And as I build this cabin here next to my son Nathan's house, I just never got over those two kids that died. And and I want to live out here in peace. You know, there's a term that men will say that a person will roll over in their grave if they saw the state of this union now. And I hope the day comes that I have no regret when I pass, but I live in happiness and contentment here. But don't make any mistake about it, Mr. Dean. My footsteps have been marked often in blood. I've been the companion of owls at night, and I've been bit by the winter uh, coldness and, and scorched by the summer heat. And I've lost two hand, two children to the hands of savages, and I've buried these children, and I've suffered greatly for that. And I, I want to live in contentment and peace here now. Let, let me ask you about the – you refer to – the natives, the Indians, as, as savages. And it, it doesn't appear to me that you really had anything... Well, I guess what I'm asking, what, what, are, what are your feelings about the Shawnee, specifically? It seems like that was where most of uh, your contentious relationships were. I mean, how do you feel about the Indians? Are they bad? Are they good? Were they just trying to protect their land? I mean, what, do, what are your thoughts on this? I think that you'll find my answer somewhat surprising. Mr. Dean, you have to understand something. This was their home. This was their land. And sometimes I've wondered this same question that you're asking of me now. And so I don't take kindly that people put words into my mouth that I understand if I put myself in their situation that they were the natives to this land. This was their home. And maybe... Just maybe, Mr. Dean, they were trying to protect what was rightfully theirs. So I have no ill feelings in my heart. And I know that you find that probably somewhat bewildering, if you will, that I wouldn't hold malice and hate in my heart for my two children. But I had bridged into that wilderness of their home, their motherland, and where no man had ever traveled before. And that's to answer your question, how I feel about them, I carry no burden or ill feelings towards them. Looking back, I understand why you would have gone to Kentucky and into the their native lands. But looking back, do you think that maybe you were in the wrong, maybe even building Boonesboro? I've never been asked that, Mr. Dean. I'd have to give that some thought. You know the sign of a righteous man, Mr. Dean, that he can admit that he's at fault. A humble man will admit that maybe he made the wrong decisions. I'm not telling you I don't respect you, Mr. Dean, and that I'm not comfortable answering that, but you ask a very perplexing question. Was I wrong? 
did I make the wrong decisions? I don't know. I'd have to give that more thought. I think it's probably hard to, uh, if, even if you feel like the answer is yes to that, it's hard to say yes because none of us want to be in the wrong. But I think you were just kind of leading to that. If the roles were reversed and you were in their place and they were in your place, I'm, I'm guessing that you would have fought to the death to protect your land, no question about it, like you did so many times on the other side of that, of any argument. Maybe know? so. So then what happens next is you're court-martialed for some reason. Now, this I don't know a lot about. Can you tell, why is somebody court-martialing you? I mean, here you, like, blaze this path so that others can follow, and you build this settlement. How in the world does somebody look at you and say, this is not aligned with the, the goals of what America had in mind? Why are you court-martialed? Well, I have an opinion about that, and I'm very angered by it because they would end up court-martial me and call me an Indian lover and try me for treason because a lot of their men, folk, didn't make it back. And I, I explained in my opening and my closing arguments. I represented myself. I didn't have the liberty to have counsel to represent me that day. But that court-martial would go on, and I would explain that some men chose not to come back. Some were killed. But I didn't carry the blood of all those men that we were captured because surely if I wouldn't have made the decisions I would have and they would have marched on Fort Boonesboro, they would have massacred our women and children then. And I would tell them during my court-martial that we have baptized children together, that we have sacrificed so much to make this land our home and that you have the audacity to make the accusations that you have. And I remember one time that leading up to this court-martial, that it was on the Sabbath, on Sunday, and that my wife walked down to one of the lower bunkhouses and that we were going to have a message and sing some hymns and the women of the fort, that their husbands didn't come back, turned their back to my bride, Rebecca, and wouldn't speak to her. They shunned her, which led me to end up walking across the frozen Kentucky River that Christmas day that we began this conversation with, and I vowed never to come back, and I didn't come back. I would wander in the wilderness on business ventures for the next 15 to 20 years before I would end up being here in Missouri this morning. And I'm sorry you hear that tone in my voice, but it just it still to this day angers me. No, I'd be angry too. So what was the result of the court-martial? Well, I was found not guilty of all charges. As a matter of fact, I was promoted following my court-martial to a colonel in the Kentucky militia. You know, I don't think that happens very often. Somebody gets court-martialed, and then right afterwards they get promoted. It just goes to show how ridiculous the claims were that you were treasonous and that you were a coward not taking care of your men when it's very clear that you were doing exactly what you had to do to delay so that they wouldn't attack the fort and whatever it took to keep as many people alive as possible. I mean, you're working this on all fronts, trying to keep the people alive that you were with. I did, and the burden was so heavy upon me that I became so angry and disillusioned by these people that had turned on me that now I think you understand fully, Mr. Dean, why I ended up coming in to Missouri. Yeah. And after the court-martial and the sacrifices I'd made. You know, and I'm thinking about the men that, that accused you. I can't remember the names of the, the men that accused you. But I'm wondering, I'm trying to figure this out. And, like, here you are, a person. You, there are all these tales of you fighting bears and swinging through vines and 
doing all these miraculous things, and then you cut this path, the first white man basically to cut this path into Kentucky and build this fort. And you, you, I mean, you do all these incredible things, and yet there are people that are like trying to to sully your name. Do you think maybe all of that was just jealousy because you are some sort of celebrity in in the world's eyes, and it might just be jealousy? Well, I've never been. I've never had that said that way. Jealousy is a rotty, putrid thing. It's the depravity of man, jealousy and pride and ego. And I'm, I'm uncomfortable, Mr. Dean, talking about my faith, but I'll tell you this. I answer to no man, no more. I answer to my God, my creator, my wife, Rebecca. And you might find that arrogant in some way. I don't know. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I find it that this is what I like all men, that I've had to come to find terms of peace in my life. I don't find that arrogant at all. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Mr. Dean. It's yeah, not my interpretation of what I've done. My These are just the facts of what happened. It's the interpretation of other men, of this word you use, jealousy, that made they made the decision that I've not had the great success that I have in the fortitude to establish on this western frontier that I've created a home for my wife and my kids and myself and my family. You had said that when you came when you came back that people were calling you an Indian lover. And I don't know how strong of a phrase that is. Is that like the worst thing somebody can call you? Well, it's about like Colonel Trigg called me a coward that day when I wanted to back out of the Licking River. It's the same as it is. It's one of the two of the same. A man feels too comfortable to speak. You know, I've heard it's better for people to wonder why you don't have much to say, Mr. Dean, than to wonder why you speak so much. <laughs> so men sometimes need to hold their peace and stand in silence and let people wonder why he don't say much and then wonder why he speaks so much. That's the arrogant of man. I see. Now, so I know I'm a quiet man. I'm a soft-spoken man. But when we talk about these issues that have plagued my life, of mis people misinterpreting what I did and the decisions I made, it you can hear it in my voice. It makes me angry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it would anybody. So you're in Kentucky and Boonesboro, and you guys are being, that's being attacked. And all of this is happening in the middle of the American Revolutionary War. Is that correct? That's correct. And... What role do you think that you played? I mean, while the Revolutionary War is happening, do you feel like you should have maybe gone to the front towards the east and been involved there? Or was it important that you stayed right where you were? I mean, where do you see yourself in, in, in that? Well, I had established an outpost, a safe haven. Wouldn't you agree that this fortress that I had created, this burrow, withstood the attack of 400 natives and Br British that were with them that attacked that fort. So I had created, I did my part during the American Revolutionary War. I had stood my ground. I wanted our Declaration of Independence. I wanted a constitution. I wanted to be free. I wanted this motherland to be ours, not from some tall ships that landed up on our sandy shows to make this free America become Great Britain. So the English are uniting with the Indians, 
and they're basically trying to push from the western part of our country, and that's where you are. You're holding that line on the western front, so to speak. Absolutely, but I'm not the only one that did this. There was other great men that, not to get into all these different men, I wasn't the only one that did this, and we held our ground. And here it is now, what, some 20 years later, that we have our independence. This is a free America. Amazing. That all men have been created equal, and that I have established my grounds here, and I live as a free man in peace and contentment and happiness. And I, I believe and I, I accept the fact that I've been endowed with uh, a gift of salvation through my creator and that I will die in peace and uh, my children will thrive and they'll live in this country that we now call America, that they'll live as free people and they can live in contentment of happiness and not living under the authority of anything other than the government that is established for the people and by the people and of the people. And I find great peace in that, Mr. Day. In our time, there is a movie. And I'm saying a movie, but you wouldn't know what a movie is. But it's a production. And it is basically a story that people watch about this frontiersman like yourself. And his daughter gets captured. And then he tracks her for days I recently learned that, at least I've heard, that this is based off of something that actually happened to you with your daughter, Jemima. Can you tell me about that? Well, the day that happened, Jemima and there was two other girls. One of the girls had got a thistle in her foot, and it was fistered up, and she had gone down to the river and by the fort there and had, if you will, she had took her foot and was dragging it through the cool water of the river. And they had got too close to the outer bank of the fort. And there was a small tribe of Shawnee that ended up snatching them off the, the river bank. And we heard the screams. And two of the men took off running down there and saw the, the canoe floating downstream and they, they were gone. And there's a ford there that we were able to cross. and. We got a party together real quick, and that Jemima, she's a brilliant kid, and she had ripped pieces of her linen short gown and left pieces of her linen. It was a indigo blue in color. I remember it. I remember the day that her mother finished it, and she would leave swatches of that linen skirt in the woods as we followed her, and we tracked her, and they had laid down to sleep that night and we were able to overtake that camp and get all three of those girls back. That's the event you're referring to. How many days did you track them? Two days. You're making referral to that incident that people would talk about later on in the Most future? definitely, yes. And why, it's, do, why do you all find that so fascinating? Well, it's a fair question. Here you are running through the woods and tracking for all these days and probably not eating a lot. I suppose even if people were to tell stories about this in your time, it would be very easy to romanticize this and see this brave father and this trained daughter of yours so intelligent to you know, leave these little scraps that you can find. And it's hard to even imagine you running through the yeah. forest of trees and brush and you're finding little scraps of I mean, it's not like she's drawing signs and, and painting arrows on trees. 
Well, forgive me for laughing. It's the first time I felt like laughing during this whole talk, but I find that fascinating that later on that you're telling me that people would talk about that story. And I, I guess as a proud father, I'm, I'm very prideful that they would talk about that story because I have, I've trained her well and I've taught her the way of the woods well. And as a father, I find great pleasure in hearing you tell me that people later on would talk about that story of her getting captured that day and of tracking them down and her coming back. Well, it seems like Jemima, she took to the training very well. Did any of your other daughters take so well to the woods training? Oh, they do. Four daughters and all my sons are masters of the ways of the woods of survival and living i just find that so amazing that you would share that with me of the future and that frankly i want to say this i in the back of my mind the whole time we've talked then you know the answer to one question what's that that you know when my life ends i do i absolutely do and this is something that i never share and the reason that i don't share this is because things turned out the way that they were supposed to. If you were to see the way that things turned out, you probably wouldn't want to change them. And so I'm very hesitant to to share that kind of information because I, I wouldn't want you to do something different. I mean, your reputation in our time is larger than life. Well, I mean, let me say this then. With that being said, I'm not the smartest man in in this frontier but I have listened to you very carefully and the way and the manner of the way you've asked me questions that I found great comfort and peace in this, that my life has been talked about in a good way, a positive way, yeah. larger than life. And I can tell you and be rest assured, I've told you this over and over in our talk this morning here, that I'm comfortable with my life and that God has a plan for me. And I wouldn't want to know the answer to that question, is what I'm saying to you. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that completely. Let me ask you about, as you're following Jemima, and you reach the camp, and you find the Indians that had captured her, what did that look like, where you reclaim her? Were there a bunch of them, or were there just a couple? And, like, what happened? Was there a big fight? Well, no. There was, there was seven of us men, eight counting me that overtook that camp that night and we took care of necessary business of what we had to do. And, uh, there was a, a very short fight during the night, but we had the advantage because they had all fallen asleep and they had the girls tied up in trunk lines with some, what you would refer to as a ropes. And we were able to free them and, and immediately take them back home that evening after that. I wonder what would have been different if you had arrived and instead of there being a handful of men sleeping, if they'd made it all the way back to a major camp where there had been 50 or 100 people there that you had to contend with. Well, I sometimes reflect on that incident, but that's not the way it turned out that night. And so we were very lucky. Well, Colonel Boone, I just have a, a couple last questions that I want to ask you, and, and then I, I'm just going to thank you for your time. You've been so generous with it, and uh, I'm, I'm completely fascinated by, by what you've done. So you now are in Missouri, and, and you've left Kentucky forever. Do you think that you are, are you ever going to go back to Kentucky? Are you glad you're out of there? Do you miss it? 
What is your experience with Missouri? You know, I, I find great teeth out here. And um, I've done all that I need to do in Kentucky. And I reflect about my age. My health is still real well. I, I think I feel comfortable that I want to. This is probably where I'll die here. And this is where I feel like I need to be. Uh, Rebecca likes it here. I think I would rather roll over in my grave than to come back to Kentucky. When you look back at your life, is there anything that you wish that maybe you would have done differently? You know, I was a young, foolish boy, but I have no regret. I've lived a wonderful, prosperous life. I have loved my wife, Rebecca, unimaginably. She has been the, the apple of my life. And out of all these children we've raised, we have just a magnitude of grandchildren. And I would say that looking back, that my life has been prosperous. And I live in total contentment now and happiness and peace. Gosh. No regrets on my part. Well, Colonel Boone, thank you again for all your time and your contribution. And I, I wish you a long, healthy life after this. And Mr. Dean, I do you the same. Thank and you. I appreciate this time to speak. And you might be the one person that was brought into my life to tell the truth of where I've been, where I'm at, and where I'm going. And I deeply appreciate that, Mr. Dean. More than a decade after Boone's death, a book titled Biographical Memoirs of Daniel Boone became one of the best-selling biographies of the 19th century. The author had interviewed Boone while he was alive, but after his death took many liberties telling the stories of his life. Yet, although Boone didn't swing from vines escaping Indians, and he didn't wrestle a bear, his life was story-worthy. He did track a group of Native Americans into the forest to save his kidnapped daughter. He did fight 400 angry Indians and win a 10-to-1 battle. And he did forge a path through the wilderness where those before him had failed. Of the hundreds of thousands that followed his path into Kentucky, Boone led some of them himself, including the family of Captain Abraham Lincoln, the grandfather of the future president. Towards the end of the Revolution, Boone unsuccessfully attempted several business ventures. At one point, he had collected 20,000 pounds from settlers wanting him to locate quality lots of land. Sadly, the money was stolen from his room, leaving Boone with a gigantic problem. Eventually, he began speculating on land himself and then lost a fortune. His dreams of living peacefully in the woods disappeared, and he was buried in debt, ultimately leading to a warrant for his arrest. But looking for a fresh start, he moved to Missouri for good. Although promising that he would never return to Kentucky, legend says that he did return one more time to settle those debts. He lived his later years hunting and trapping, but of course was once again captured by the Osage Indian tribe, who could have killed him but instead took all of his furs and then let him go. And of course he was almost pulled into another war, but even though he was willing, he was too old to fight being in his 70s. After all of that, he finished his life in the woods, hunting and trapping, until the age of 85. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Daniel Boone. If you haven't yet, please subscribe now. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History Boone.